When I started as a physician leader, my first big role in academics was to be the chief of general internal medicine. And at that time, I was the only female chief in the Department of Medicine where I was at Tulane and really one of the very few senior female leaders in the entire university. That's our guest, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, a Dell Medical School professor and former acting assistant secretary for health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services under Obama who joins us for our first female-only episode of the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. We're taking this opportunity to talk about what it means to be a female healthcare leader and to also examine some of the latest advancements addressing social determinants of health through digital innovation. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor and visit Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. We invite you to subscribe so you'll never miss a new episode. Thanks and enjoy today's show. Hello, welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Terry Stone, Managing Partner in the Health and Life Science Practice here at Oliver Wyman. In this episode, we're talking with Karen DeSalvo, a physician, a professor of medicine and population health at the University of Texas at Austin in the Dell Medical School. She's a pretty impressive lady and former acting assistant secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She's also speaking this year at Oliver Wyman's Health Innovation Summit in November in a couple weeks um, right here in Dallas. Um, It's actually your second time speaking at our event, Karen, and we're really excited to have you back. Karen, welcome to our podcast today, and um, I'm looking forward to talking to you about some of the things that are going on in healthcare. Thanks, Terry. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm excited to get to join you guys again at the summit. And I was I really enjoyed the last time I was able to attend, and it's always great conversations and wonderful people to get to meet. And great. It's a, it's a pretty exciting lineup for this year, so we're, we're really looking forward to it. We're in the final push, as you could imagine. Um, okay, first topic is something that, quite frankly, is both near and dear to my heart, And it's also a topic that's been trending in the news and in social media, and it has to do with female leadership. Um, Last year, I wrote on Oliver Wyman Health with a couple of my colleagues um, that while 65% of U.S. healthcare workforce is female, less than about 20% to 25% of healthcare leaders are female. Um, It was interesting. Were you at the J.P. Morgan conference this year, Karen? Yes, in January, yes. Okay, did you see that tweet in the blog post that came out where they said yes, the most frequently, there were more Michaels speaking at the conference than there were women in total, and then the third most commonly um, common speaker were men named John. So while we were at um, J.P. Morgan last year, we have a lot of senior women partners. Um, I'm the managing partner of our group. I'm a woman. And we sort of said, this is crazy. If someone's going to tackle this thing, we should get in on it. And so we've actually been doing um, some interesting research on it. And we've got some statistics. And we've been interviewing lots of senior women leaders out there. And we're going to be interviewing lots of additional male leaders. I'm trying to figure out what is going on in healthcare. Um, it's not only is it that we don't have enough leaders relative to the workforce, but I think the scary stat is that we've got 80% of the healthcare decisions in this country tend to be made by women. And when you consider the likes of the Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaways, or the what will Walmart do in healthcare, or the where will Google go, you start to think if we don't do a better job making sure that our leaders match those who are making some of the decisions, um, healthcare could wind up coming up short 
the incumbent players, I should say, could wind up coming up short relative to some of these disruptive innovations. Um, so with that in mind, what are your thoughts? Well, it's been, um, quite frankly, a really um, unexpected career journey for me. When I started years ago, I had in my mind that I wanted to be a doctor and that maybe I would want to go into hospital administration. In fact, I started out in college as a business major, but I was pre-med. And I, so I, I think for me personally, so many of the opportunities that have come my way that I've taken advantage of and have been really unexpected in my own career. I didn't start out with, I want to be, you know, certain title or certain job. And that has meant, um, for me, it's just all been a lot of open doors and, and frankly been very, uh, a very good experience. I've had along the way mentors um, who are both male and female who have been uh, really great supporters of my work and, you know, provided at the right time the kind of promotion and sponsorship that I needed. I've also had I think especially in, in this, you know, the last five to ten years of my career, uh, really great support from peers. And uh, among them increasingly, Terry, are our female peers who are senior leaders in healthcare. And it's, it's just been, it's been interesting for me to um, recognize that over the course of that journey, though I've had great help and support from many corners, there's something very special about uh, the intentionality with which women leaders support each other and then also have been increasingly focused on supporting the pipeline. Because I think um, when, for example, when I started uh, as, a, as a physician leader, my first big role in academics was to be the, the chief of general internal medicine. And at that time, I was the only female chief in the Department of Medicine where I was at Tulane and really one of the very few senior female leaders in the entire university, much less at the medical school. And, and I sort of, I think at the time, took for granted, this was the late 90s, that, oh, well, that's just how it is and, and I'm going to go first and, and use my opportunity as a gatekeeper to open that door for others behind me. But as you, as you note, it hasn't been as quick as I think many of us thought it would be. And, and, I, and back to this word of intentional, I do believe that we're learning we have to be um, really a lot more deliberate about identifying develop, you know, future leaders, developing them, supporting not only the pipeline but each other um, in the work that we do. And one of the interesting characteristics of, of uh, women leaders that we're all, I think, trying to, or a lot of us are trying to understand a good nuance about is this issue of self-promotion. It's kind of... Um, uh, I, I call it a fact. <laughs> it's an issue. You know, we tend to uh, demur and think about duty over glory. And uh, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here, I recognize. But but even if you, you know, so so I think that, that uh, one of the ways that I'm trying to help myself and, and my uh, mentees especially to understand how it is they, they make clear their skills and qualifications and experience and not feel that they're being um, you know egomaniacal about it, but actually just reflecting on their skills and experience, and and, and feel comfortable uh, speaking up. I think there's some there's some cultural things about about women as leaders that that maybe we also have to acknowledge and work on. Much less the fact that I think that uh, there clearly seems to be um, some additional um, barriers. I, I just wanted to mention something, Terry. That one of the groups that I've uh, belonged to is called Women of Impact, sure. and we recently had something in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst about how women leaders uh, and other leaders can support 
um, uh, female leadership in organizations. And, and so I, um, I would um, point people to that as a resource because we all thought about good uh, strategies that we've used when we've led organizations to help diversify, but also to help spo- uh, with sponsorship and mentorship in the pipeline. No, that sounds great. You said it's women of impact or women in impact? Women of, women impact. of impact, yes. Okay. And the, the piece was, was recent, and um, Vivian Lee and Joanne Conroy were, were, were the lead authors, and the rest of us uh, contributed oh, to, to that as well. We had a little infographic that we tweeted about it also. Just some simple steps, a checklist um, to really think about how to be more intentional in, in our opportunities that we create for women leaders. I think your point about intentionality is so important. It's interesting because I, I feel like this issue of women in business in general, it's like so many things in the country right now, I feel like it gets a little polarizing. And it starts to become one of these things where people start, um, I think we have to be careful because what happens is there's a lot of rhetoric and talk that the problem is that the folks in more of the power influence positions just want to keep it that way. And I think there's something much more subtle going on underneath it, which, and they, they sit there saying, well, I don't think women should just have to change. We should change the culture. I'm like, well, of course we should change the culture. Um, but it's this idea, I agree with you on people speaking up or knowing what they want. Oftentimes women don't have as big a plan to their career, so they actually aren't necessarily also as outspoken. But also realizing there's just subtle things that are different about how when we women are alone, how we interact. And I think a lot of the men out there, I believe most of the leaders I see in healthcare, they are good people who want to put the best people in the roles. I don't think it's a purposeful thing. I think there are subtleties about how people interact, communicate, that we're not explicitly aware of and that they're not explicitly aware of. And we've just got to figure out what those are and be more intentional and purposeful. Does that make sense to you? Like, I don't think anyone's doing anything on purpose. Oh, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so uh, to quite honestly, for the the, uh, bulk of my career, my mentors have been male. So were mine. And (laughs) the reasons for that are, yeah, very, very often because there was no female that, that could mentor in the kind of work that I was doing. Yeah, and and I, I I mean, frankly, I never felt like um, my gender was an issue in in the roles and responsibilities that I've had, and I'm really thankful for that inclusiveness that that my lead that my leaders and mentors had along the way. I, I also um, think there's this gap you hear about a lot where there's intentionality, there's a policy, there's there's a you know a desire to um, you know. Uh, make sure that that, for example, governing boards are, are diverse in, with respect to gender, et cetera. But it's the how do you do it? And I think that that's one of the reasons that we wanted to do this checklist because it it starts to give you a sense of, oh, here's some of the ways that you can very specifically begin to intentionally look at at whether policies and procedures are encouraging or discouraging in some subtle ways. And it's a, you know, I think that's the beginning of what what I hear happening in a lot of C-suites and boardrooms. And in um, academic hallways about about how do we um, make sure that we're looking at the right um, potential levers and not not throwing up some barriers that we haven't really quite seen. You know, you, uh, I'm on the faculty now at University of Texas at Austin, and and they've been doing a lot of work in this space. And and just to you know acknowledge that in academia we we've had a struggle for a long time, but even there they've been thinking about how to change expectations or. Um, you know, and and the look at salaries, not just to do it globally, but to really dig in where we might have in some schools um, more more challenges. And they've made tremendous progress. And I just want to call it the NIH. I mean, Francis Collins has been working systematically to try to make sure that there's equity in pay, equity in opportunity, um, and that barriers like um, uh, a clock, a ten year clock, 
or the equivalent of the NIH doesn't get in the way um, for some of the, the life stages that women women go through and, and you don't have to fall off the tenure curve. And these are you know, these are all kind of policies that we've taken for granted for a long time. They've, they've begun to change around the country, but it's going to take a lot more than that. And, and to your point earlier about industry, the private sector, I think just has to, you know, continue to do the good work it's doing uh, to, to make all of this, the system more inclusive for everyone, not just by gender. And, and like, and I do agree with you, there's a lot of goodwill. Now we just have to get to the work of the how, not the what. Completely agree. And I'm looking forward to talking with you more about it when you're here in town in a few weeks. Um, switching gears a little bit, I'm curious as to how you think we should understand and address all the determinants of health, including social determinants. If we want to be really successful in value-based care or in population health and really having an impact on the quality of people's lives, on the ability to influence behaviors, what are your thoughts on um, determinants of health? This has been the central theme of my professional and also personal journey for the last you know, 30 years that I've been doing this this work of medicine. And you know, I as a, I'm a primary care doctor, as I'm an internist by training, and spent about you know, 25 years taking care of, of patients in a more traditional medical environment. But it was um, through um, uh, that work, caring for people who in, were largely uninsured. This was in Louisiana, and and struggled not only because mm-hmm. of that lack of insurance and and the medical needs, but quite frankly, had a lot of social need. And they taught me over the course of the early part of my career. Uh, how um, significant for them were these non-medical challenges. They they may know what medication to take and want to adhere to a care plan, but have so many other barriers to their health and wellness that relate to family issues or financial issues or just even things like public safety in their community that would cause stress and elevate blood pressure and, um, and, and create kind of a post-traumatic stress disorder that has all the, the, the consequent issues. And so even very early in my clinical career, I knew that there was this, this body of opportunity to improve the health of the people I was serving, but it wasn't really until after Hurricane Katrina and then my time as health commissioner in New Orleans uh, and then carrying forward to my policy work in Washington that I began to understand that there was a syst- some systematic need to identify this. This wasn't a New Orleans or charity hospital specific issue. This was um, something happening all across the country where the um, health outcomes and cost of care were being driven not just by medical complexity, but by social complexity. And we're seeing this very clearly in the data across the country right now that the the leading causes of death or the thing that's causing life expectancy to decline in our country relates to um, social issues. It's about uh, educational opportunity and job opportunity, um, as well as things like like help, hopelessness and social isolation, and uh, there are consequent uh, issues related to cost. And and as you, as we as a country are getting further along in the journey of value based care, we're and we're looking for what are the what are the you know cost drivers. We all know that it's the high cost, high need individuals that five percent that drive half the cost. But those people aren't just medically complicated; they're also socially complicated, just like all my patients were across my career. And, and this is a population health phenomenon in any kind of payer or community. And and so the the exciting work that's happening is that as systems, health systems, dig into their 
high cost, high need populations, whether they're looking at the data quantitatively or they're doing qualitative assessments, they're learning about this. They're learning that it matters if somebody goes to bed hungry or if they don't have good housing. Uh, and that um, the more downside risk people have in value-based care, whether you're a health plan or a health care system, the more you're financially responsible for the total cost of care, uh, the more interested those systems have become in understanding why it is that, for example, readmission rates can be dropped but hit a floor and people continue to come back in the hospital with recurrent heart failure or emphysema or don't do well after surgery. It's not, again, just because even if you perform perfectly, even if you do the surgery well, yeah, right. there's there's going to be there's going to be other issues, and so this um, this is a, a, a central theme of the work that I'm doing right now. But I think it, what's exciting is that um, the, the the healthcare system and all of its important partners are recognizing that not only is this a public health challenge. Uh, it's going it, to it's going to require the health healthcare systems who want to be successful in value based care, especially as they move to downside risk, to really understand what are the social needs, not just the medical needs of their patient populations. Yeah, it's uh, um, I couldn't agree more. It's kind of it's interesting and challenging, in that I think just like you said on the women's point, I think people are becoming aware of the nature of the issue and the problem, mm-hmm. how they go about dre- addressing it becomes some of the challenge. Right? It's sort of your people need to take on a much broader set of responsibilities or be more networked into the community and able to provide resources that are not traditionally what we think of as the job of healthcare. Otherwise, we aren't able to address it. And it does seem even actually, I don't know why, seldom do I ever speak of anything political, but it's interesting to me that um, I, I was struck by this a few months back that the very siloed structure, even in the in the government overall, about how different components of this get treated are part of what can make it hard to get all the funding in the right place to address it because the hidden there's a lot of cost associating with addressing social issues yet the benefits of addressing those come into the other silos in the system like the medicaid bucket or the medicare bucket eventually and those sorts of costs um and so it's just it's interesting we have kind of at our disposal an ability to pull a lot of levers but i think as you cited it all depends on who's accountable for the total impact, whether it's a payer, whether it's actually the hospital system, et cetera. But I'm very hopeful. Um, with that in mind, are there what's like one of the best examples that you've seen in terms of what a health system or a given player could be a payer, but like a health system or anyone is doing to address social determinants, how they're using community partnerships or doing other things? Like what's something that makes you really excited and gives you hope? You think of it as a best practice that others could consider. Well, let me start by acknowledging that this is a challenge that's bigger than any one sector. I agree with you. And we um, wrote about that when I was at HHS, this effort I did called Public Health 3.0, which was focused mostly on the public health infrastructure, but uh, truly is just about this concept that everyone's got a part to play in improving health. And it's done better when, when there's not only cooperation, but in some cases, convergence across the systems uh, to be much more seamless in the opportunity to manage health of people and communities, as well as manage things like data and financial risk. The um, interesting part about uh, politics is that right uh, right now, um, coming out of Washington are some very interesting policy efforts that are aimed to provide more flexibility to Medicaid and Medicare payers on the front lines 
to be able to address social need. And so I'm actually quite excited. In, Congress uh, has been engaged in this just as much as HHS. So we're beginning to see some recognition uh, after, um, after some time of, of people trying to help policymakers understand that uh, all the siloing of funding is not helpful for the work that needs to get done on the front line. And I think the value-based care movement's really driving a lot of this. So recognizing, for example, that there are, that uh, most of the most of the money in the federal budget is in Medicare. Congress and HHS are working through the Medicare Advantage programs to give more flexibility to MA plans to use MA dollars to pay for, for food delivery, as an example. And, and that's the beginning of, of, I think, more work where what you would do that kind of model of transferring healthcare dollars to buy social care needs. There isn't as much work right now. Transportation. To, yeah, food, there's not yeah. as much work right now to shore up the social care system, but th this is a, a good start. The second, uh, I mean, third point, I guess, is that um, I feel like I'm picking amongst my children a favorite model because I <laughs> travel this country all the time. I have been to every time zone and temperate zone and uh, seen big payers um, and small health systems and community health centers doing amazing work in targeting social need and doing it in a way that is lowering cost. Um, and so I, I want to be clear with you that there is really good work happening in the field. There is good evidence being reported in the literature. There's just a new uh, new report out in the next last couple of days in health affairs from some work they're doing in Indiana that shows that if you um, take simple steps to uh, ask about social need in structured ways and address the social the social needs, you can reduce cost and utilization and improve health outcomes. Uh, if people want to know more about that literature, Terry, I would direct them to um, the, the SIREN network, which is S-I-R-E-N okay. out of UCSF. They are compiling some of the best literature in the space. And, and so that's a good place to go to look for good practices. Okay, great. Um, I would also point people to um, uh, the uh, National Alliance to Impact the Social Determinants of Health, something I co-convene with Governor Mike Levitt, former HHS secretary. Our website's nasdo.org. And we've been pulling together some promising practices. But I'm going to uh, tell you uh, about one that I love and because I've had the chance to do some work on it. And I think their arc is really... Um, uh, exciting. It's Intermountain. Okay. And Great company. Yep. Intermountain's a good example for a couple reasons. One, um, they are an integrated delivery network. And that, like, you know, the Kaisers and Geisingers and Ballot House are some of the places where some of the most exciting work is happening because they've got share, they have a, a financial incentive aligned with their provider network, which allows them to, I think, really advance the work they're doing quickly. I, the other thing about Intermountain, so what they're doing now is called the Utah Alliance, and they've got two zip code areas where they're focusing uh, on, a, on addressing the health of the populations who live there, and they're doing it in a, a, a partnership model with public health and social services, the faith-based community and the business community, amongst others. And so they've created a governance structure that I would call a public health 3.0 kind of model that shares uh, the development of vision and uh, outcome expectations and um, will work on resourcing up community in, in, there. I think what's uh, great about the way Intermountains approach this is it's very data-driven using not only their own data, but they've been working with state government and local government to understand 
the lay of the land for social care needs. So what is the, how are they hotspotting WIC and SNAP and other kinds of social care dollars so they can begin to understand what resources are available in the community and look at gaps and then help people enroll in what they're already eligible for or work with the food system, for example, to fill gaps uh, in, in the um, maybe food distribution for food bank. But also they're thinking, so that's one, they're being very data-driven. Two, um, they're thinking very strategically about aligning not only their healthcare dollars, but also their community benefit dollars. And they're encouraging others in the community to do the same. So to be strategic about where there are gaps and needs and to how to support and shore up the social care infrastructure, not just transfer dollars through contracting, but really think about a long game. And I think the final thing that I like about their approach is they're not just looking for claims avoidance. They're really thinking about improving the community's yeah, health. health. So their, their goals aren't just reduce cost in this year. Yeah, but how do we make sure the next generation is healthier than the one that's there now? That sounds great. What kind of digital technology innovations really get you psyched? Like, what are the things you've seen that make you think, wow, if this comes to scale, this is a game changer. Like, what, what would really help on social determinants? Well, this is this is um, where this is where the game changing is going to be in the next five to ten years on social determinants. All the decades of work that we've done before were mostly done on paper or um, you know kind of hacked together. But what the digital and technology world's giving us is a chance to not only more systematically assess but also address and then evaluate. So so I think one of the hot areas that people are talking a lot about is how to digitize the social care infrastructure so that it can be a better partner to the healthcare system and others. And in some cases, there's some some uh, deliberate work to provide the health IT infrastructure and use digital platforms that um, connect healthcare and social care. So there's a suite of these um, that are these named companies like Tav Connect or NowPow and uh, or Healthify, and and they're, they uh, are essentially an interoperability platform that's not just healthcare to healthcare, but healthcare to housing agency and food agency. And they, I, I love the design of them in the sense that the philosophy of all of these startups has been put the person at the center, not the healthcare system, not the doctor, and use uh, non-proprietary uh, HL7 you know standards that allow it to be interoperable, and they're using uh, APIs, these storeways to the data. So they're, they, uh, uh, I'm so thankful, skipped over so many of the mistakes that the EHR <laughs> the world things made were still struggling. that we had to fix when I was national coordinator, and and now are getting fixed. But but I think they're going to allow for a more interoperable interoperable interface. I think the other. Uh, there, there's some other um, social sector digitization work happening that you know people interested could kind of uh, begin to learn about. But maybe the most uh, relevant thing I think people ought to be paying attention to is that there's a little bit of the slog of helping the social services organizations get you know basically get computers and get online and start using these tools. But there's also some um, skipping over. So think about rideshare being involved as a transportation. A social services company that because that's what they've become and uh, those some of those companies and they already have a digital platform so the opportunity to share that information and be interconnected may uh, turn out to be a crowd out challenge for some of the small social services organizations not in, only in transportation but in food delivery and i think in a whole bunch of other areas so it's a very interesting space how the healthcare and social care systems talk how the person has access to the individual being served has access to the information 
and whether or not we're going to uh, really resource up the social care sector. I think the other part that's so exciting to me about what's happening in this social determinants world is how uh, companies are um, looking at being more preemptive. So a lot of the work happening in the social the social care space, uh, when it especially relates to that to 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 the value-based agenda is thinking downstream. So I've got a high cost, high need population. I need to understand what to do beyond um, medical uh, medical services. What what are the clinical needs? And then I, on a one-off basis, you know, make sure grandma's not going to bed hungry and that that doesn't contribute to her heart failure exacerbations because she's buying food instead of her medication or she's buying salty food because it's cheaper. So that's a downstream uh, approach. And there's some really interesting analytics happening in that space that use retail data as an example to try to predict who's going to be high cost in the next 12 months because most of the most of the way we predict who's going to be high cost is by looking back at their claims data and we all know that right. that's clunky it doesn't really always tell you the future so there's this very interesting uh, big data work happening to try to stratify populations based on social risk using not only their healthcare experience but the rest of their life experience where they live and how they shop and there's some privacy issues there but it's some, a very very interesting way to try to get ahead of somebody's needs. And, and I think the upstream part of this is going to get to be exciting too. So if when you can, when, when a, a smart speaker system or a smart house or any kind of device that's, that we're interfacing with in our usual life, not as a patient, but as a person right. can begin to track when someone is going to fall off the curve um, and use that as a way to intervene in not only medical need, but social need well ahead of, of that becoming a challenge for the person, there's a lot of tremendous opportunity to support people before they start going to bed hungry and and really understand where there's, not even for a person, but for a community where we start to see needs. And you're seeing some of this kind of technology uh, being being thought about for use even at the community level with when public health or health systems start to use uh, Twitter data or retail data to try to understand where there might be um, a- outbreaks of communicable disease. They're starting to think about this as an opportunity for opioids. Mm-hmm. And we haven't yet used it for things like hunger outbreak, if you will, but I think that there's there's going to be increasing Facebook yeah, attention. Yeah, yeah, Twitter, Facebook. Something, didn't they predict, I think they predicted the flu outbreaks like before people were tracking or something. Like there was something interesting that was, in the same that way. Was, yeah, that was Google and, and it was, it was Google, early sorry. days, but yeah, there's some science scientists that are doing this work in places like New York City and in Connecticut and in Maryland, Kentucky, where the public health community is working with healthcare and others to think, well, we don't have to wait and do surveys and know what happened last year. What we are working to do is know what's happening. Yeah, there's a huge business model around this. So it's not just a, a public health opportunity. There's also a business opportunity. And it's not even so much about claims avoidance. It's also about um, healthy population. I mean, when you get into this world of, if you're an MA plan or a managed care, a managed Medicare organization, you don't want to just know who has need today. You want to know who's going to have need in the future, and and that's where AI, not AI, excuse me, but predictive analytics is getting really sophisticated. I did want to just mention quickly AI though, because it was on my mind, obviously, which is I think a way that social care and medical care are just beginning to think through how they can re- you can reduce cognitive load for, say, a social worker on a team or a community health worker right. to really help direct services. And um, there's some companies that are beginning to work on that. 
uh, as well, um, big name companies as well as small companies to really think through the way we've been supporting with augmented intelligence, healthcare. Can we do something similar in the social care side to make addressing social need, uh, both downstream and upstream, much more efficient and effective? Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. It it reminds me of some of the, the digital apps and things you see even on the commercial side where people are talking about, you know, just by how people are speaking into their phone, you can assess their overall mm-hmm. stress and anxiety levels and other things and all the types of things that otherwise take much more time and intervention. I also was struck, it was interesting, my head started spinning when you were describing all the, as you said, there's digital connectivity, which will simplify a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of stuff that's been very manual and very fragmented, which is amazing. And then it it reminded me, the big thing with digital is you connect many to many, right? And I'm I'm envisioning Mm -hmm. you describing this Mm -hmm. and accessing, there's already platforms that let you access rides and things like that. And it it makes me start thinking about, we've done it in, social good for like micro lending and businesses and people, um, you know, um, making loans to women in villages in Africa who do jewelry. But the idea that you could get out of your Uber or Lyft ride and at the same time your rank or whatever, you're rating them and you're giving a tip, you could be, do you, are you willing to buy a ride, you know, to help someone go to the doctor, do whatever. And that you could do that or when it's Uber Eats or whatever. Like it's it's pretty interesting, the stuff that we could be doing that actually goes even beyond the basic functional and might help with also some of the funding. I think an interesting model to watch in this space of the the digital infrastructure supporting the social care, so, social determinants of health is the state of North Carolina. They, they, they're the first state that has, that has come together, again, public-private sector arrangement, and they decided instead of every health system or every payer picking a digital platform that would communicate, that they would pick one for the whole state. And it would also be a no wrong door opportunity to look for so where people people could themselves go and look for resources and supports and see if they're eligible for various programs, whatever they might be. And um, it, I'm really excited about that kind of systemic approach that's a public-private sector opportunity that won't mean that a housing agency has to be on five digital platforms to support the community or that the community won't know where to look. It's, it's um, kind of, it's like, the, it's thinking about kind of taking two-on-one system and, and digitizing it uh, modernizing it and then creating a closed loop referral opportunity, but then also this Yelp-like opportunity where you can rate the social services providers. It's a, it's an exciting choice that they made. Yeah, I hope other states will That's follow. That's exciting, right? The idea of people building it purpose-built, integrated from the beginning would be nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, Karen, if there were no limitations on resources, money, or talent, the sky's the limit. What would you fix about healthcare? Well, I think that. The, the thing that I would fix, honestly, Terry, is I would get us to universal coverage. And uh, it, within that, though, I would want to see we were um, ensuring that we had universal access to primary care and that primary care was paid in kind of a population capitation model. And I tell you why I put that at the top of my list, because I, I certainly experienced that in Louisiana in the work that we did after Katrina, that until you can get people covered and, and for ha- them to have a way to pay for their care, then you don't create the right pressures and tensions in the marketplace for the market to compete for their business. Um, and, and if you don't um, do that, then you don't create that innovation opportunity and that cultural uh, opportunity for them to have the service that's gonna make the most difference in their health outcomes. The other part about primary care is it's the front line to that more upstream work of really moving to health. And, and so I think that 
my dream is actually that we double the budget for public health and social and the social care systems and modernize and innovate them. But I don't think we can get there as a country until we stop arguing about coverage. And so uh, I, I wish that we would get universal coverage so we could really get onto the business of thinking about health and not health care. That sounds great, Karen. I, I, like you, would, would love a world where we can move forward with a with everyone being covered and with um, the ability of the industry to innovate and, okay. and focus on that and delivering the kind of health that we need or the health outcomes we need. So Karen, with that, it's been so great chatting with you today. Thank you so much for being our guest. We look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Terry, thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing you up in Dallas. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We also invite you to subscribe to the Oliver Wyman Health community on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This way, you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.